Can we let Jared and the worship band know how much we appreciate their hard work? It is good to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, open those to Mark chapter 1. We are starting a season in the book of Mark. We have divided it into uh, the book of Mark over the next year into four pieces. And we will begin one of those today. Because Jared and I like to give space for things like Advent and, and thematic series. But we are going to spend the, a large portion of our next year together in the Gospel of Mark. And our first section of that is Mark chapter 1 through almost the end of chapter 2. And the title of it is The Way Made Ready. The Way Made Ready. Our big idea for today's message really comes down to this. I'm going to ask a question and you feel free to take note of that, to consider that in your own life, in your own heart. And, and that's this. What are we consistently expediting to display that we trust in the Messiah? What things are we pushing to the side so that we can be displaying that we trust in what God has done for us in Jesus? Mark's a unique gospel. It's probably the quickest take on all, uh, of all four gospel accounts. We typically will say that there's Mark's gospel and John's gospel. That's not actually correct because they're not different gospels. They are the same gospel, the story of Jesus. And whereas John takes us to the very beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Matthew does something else. It takes us to a genealogy. Luke takes us to a genealogy. Mark does none of that. Mark takes us to a place where he says, this is what God would have you to know, and here's how God would have you to know it. And he begins in this very small place out of Isaiah. And when he does this, he's taking us a, a short, quick trip up a hill. Now, recently, my family, we just got back from vacation, and every year on vacation, my family goes to this thing called the Virginia Creeper Trail. Now, the title of the thing aside is a very beautiful ride. You uh, will drive your car to the launching position. They will put you in a van, and they will drive you up a mountain. A very quick trip up the mountain. When you get to the top of the mountain, they then Take your bike, which you have rented, off of a trailer, and you will ride 17 miles down a mountain. 17 miles down. And I think I've got an image of what this creeper trail looks like. I mean, that's basically the ride, 17 miles, and it's very casual. And you can go at your own space, you can, at your own speed, you can ride as quickly. You can avoid those rails if you want to. You don't have to, I didn't. You, you can ride down the mountain and as fast as you choose to ride down the mountain. Or you can ride, stop, look around. Ride, stop, and, and look around. So for us, as we spend our time in the Gospel of Mark, it's very much like that. He's going to take us on this little short jaunt up to the top. And then we're going to sprint down in these 16 chapters. And as you sprint down the story of Mark, you will have opportunity to, to stop and see all that God has done for us in the person of Jesus. So today we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read that over us from my, from my translation. If you have your Bible, feel free to open it there. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 20. It reads this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. 
make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is going to come after me and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptizing in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from the heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee and he proclaimed the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'm going to make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him, going, on a little, going along a little further. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. I think that all of us would agree that trust matters. That when we consider what it means for us to be people who uh, are in relationship with one another, being able to trust someone is incredibly significant. It is helpful to you accomplishing day-to-day tasks. It is helpful for you as you work through uh, each and every day as to what situations and scenarios uh, mean for you. One of my grandmother's favorite quotes was, she would tell me regularly, I would rather someone spit in my face than lie to me. And I would always think, are those the only two options? <laughs> Trust matters, and we see that through, John, through Mark's gospel here. We see that he's going to tell us all about what it means to trust. And what it means for you and for me to, to trust God in the way that we live and act and interact and react with one another. Mark's going to show us what it means for us to trust what God has done for us because trust matters. And he's going to let us know over and over what we can trust about God because of all God has done for us. Again, we trust, we can see that trust matters because God has laid out for us in this passage that we're joining in together today the notion of trust, the concept of trust. We see that we as believers in Jesus can trust numerous things in this passage. In verses 1 through 7, we see that we can trust what God has promised us. We can trust what He's promised. What we notice that in this, when we look at Mark, it's the very first of these four Gospels that were written. Mark uses the word immediately 40 times throughout his Gospel. And he's going to continually focus on the action of Jesus. He, when you read through Mark, you are seeing Mark letting the reader know you can go and act because of all that Jesus has done to act on your behalf. We can see that he's taking us somewhere. The beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, as we see in this passage, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. 
Here we have him referencing the book of Isaiah, which is where we will spend much of our time at Christmas this year. He's referencing what God has done and what God has said in the past about who this Jesus happens to be and who this Messiah actually is. The idea of of the notion of the gospel in this passage is a word that we're familiar with, especially in the Greek sense. The word there means good news, and it's tied to all that has taken place uh, for the people of Rome because they have a Caesar and they believe in his good news. Yet here, God is using that word directly to talk about the good news of what he has done for us in Jesus. It's not just a word that we find in the Greek. It's a Hebrew concept. It's a Hebrew concept that there is a king who is coming. And the king is on his way. When you look at that in Isaiah chapter 40, you see these references in this passage also melds in a tad bit of Malachi. That we have a king who is on his way and that we can trust that he was promised to us. In Isaiah 40, we see there will be one who proclaims that he is coming. John the Baptist happens to be this person. We also can know and we can see and then we can trust that this king is going to declare himself as king. We will read through the, the, gospel, the book of Isaiah and we will notice this idea of gospel there. When you get to Isaiah 53, a passage that we're very familiar with, we will see that the arm is established. His reign is established when he is broken for our sake. When he is beaten and bloodied. We see the christening of this king. We see this king in a place where we can see his reign. You look at the text here and you see that he was bruised for our iniquities in Isaiah 53. Good news that there is a king who has been declared. Verse 3, you've got a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. In the midst of all this, you have Isaiah prophesying about one who will come and be a herald. That is John the Baptist. And if you have ever spent any time considering John the Baptist, you know that he is weird. He eats bugs. He eats honey. If you're like, that's not weird. I just need you to know if John the Baptist were to walk through our church parking lot, you would call the police because he's an odd bird. You look at this text and you have weird John coming along reminding the people of the Old Testament picture of Elijah. This messenger who is referenced as this wilderness shouter. John comes baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance, according to verse 4, for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside came. People were coming from far and near to hear from this John as he's taking them to the idea of repentance and he's immersing people, baptizing people for the sake of repentance. As they are coming to him, they're hearing the words of John say about himself, I'm not it. You may think I'm it, but I'm not it. They'll eventually hear him say, you know what, I've got to become less and he's got to become greater. He actually says in verse 7, one who's more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. A rabbi could ask almost anything of his follower. He could not ask him to untie his shoes. The the servants even had rules and regulations about dealing with footwear. When John talks about Jesus, he says he is going to come and he's not going to just baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit Baptizing with water and baptizing with the Holy Spirit. These are the different concepts. These are different in the same way that we would consider this. The difference in symbolism and reality. 
Let me give you some examples. This is the difference of us talking about light and talking about a sun versus a lamp. We know that both of them provide light, but they provide it differently. Uh, Piper points out it's the difference in a person and a portrait of the person. It's the difference in marriage and a ring that symbolizes marriage. It's the difference in birth and a birth certificate. Between immersion in water and being immersed in God. When we look at the difference, we see this. You are trusting that God will do something. And his baptism of the Spirit is that you, are, you believe that God is someone. And you have been immersed in him. We see this Jesus being all of this. And John taking us to the idea that Jesus is these things. That God has promised someone who will meet the people exactly where they are. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. He meets us where we are. Verses 9 through 11. We trust that he has immersed himself. And that we are immersed in him. Consider the scene. You've got John there in the water baptizing all of these random Israelites. All of them coming to turn away and repent of their sin. Symbolic of something that's greater that needs to happen. As John is baptizing, through the crowd comes this Jesus. This Jesus who has been promised. This Jesus whose shoes he can't tie. John gets closer and closer to the water. Rather, Jesus gets closer and closer to the water. He steps into the water to be baptized. One account tells us that John did not even want to baptize him. Jesus said, yeah, you have to. So he did. When John interacts with Jesus in this passage, you have Jesus in the water, which is a visual for us of what God is doing for us eventually in the crucifixion of Jesus. Because you have a picture of Jesus in the water, immersed in the water, surrounded by the sins of the people, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new kind of life. Jesus meeting sinful, broken, helpless people and offering holistic, God-given hope because he meets you there exactly where you are. He has come for us. He has immersed himself in our sinful mess as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's what we see in 1 Corinthians and in Chris Tomlin's songs, that he became sin who knew no sin. You have Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Such a unique concept. John references that when he tells this story. Jesus as the Lamb of God. Why would John ever point that out? Why would Mark have these concepts tied together? Because when you're being baptized for repentance and you come from a Jewish tradition, you are baptized because, or rather, you are trusting when you repent that there is a sacrifice for you. And the sacrifice who walked into the water with John and the people was Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see other allusions in this passage. When it references the dove, the dove was one of the clean animals that you could sacrifice if you were too poor to afford an actual lamb. Letting us know that this Jesus does not choose status or stature. He meets anyone who wants to meet him in that water, in that watery mess. And he offers hope on the other side of it. It's the idea of the dove there. It stands for purity and humility. So of all the birds that you connect to heaven and earth and, and they're flying and landing, the dove was the one that seemed the most suitable, according to Piper, to represent the Holy Spirit 
that you've met with God. And here in this picture, we have this Trinitarian reality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit descending upon him because it will eventually say this to us about this very situation. This is my beloved Son, and it's him, in Him that I'm pleased. In Him, I'm pleased. Well, we've heard that our entire lives. We've, we've heard this Christian concept before. What does that mean for me? For those of us who have placed our faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, everything that God says to Jesus there, He says to you. In you... Because Jesus met you there, I'm pleased. It's why why Paul would say to us, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And in our hearts, we begin to argue with that. But what about when I do this? And how about when I do that? And what about if I do this? And what? For those who are in Christ Jesus, God is pleased in you. He is pleased in you because he is, he is the one who meets you where you are. Not only did Jesus meet you where you are, he is God's unfailing global hope. Verses 12 and 13. Read with me. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So, just a complete side note. If in your heart of hearts or in your mind of minds or in your thought of thoughts, you think following after Jesus fixes everything. That there will be no problems when we follow Jesus, when we trust Jesus. We see God say that he is pleased in Jesus. John uses the word immediately to let us know that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Where he will be tempted by Satan himself. As he is there, Jesus in the wilderness. It says he was there for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. The number 40 there is important for us because it is, the, it is intentionally there to remind us of what took place with the Jewish people. If you're unfamiliar in the book of Exodus, you have the children of Israel who go into the wilderness and they roam around for 40 years, failing. We know that about their story. The idea of failure. However, Israel is the idea of God's... They are God's hope of the world. That is what they were taught for the entirety of the Old Testament. That God... And his hope for all of humanity was found in this small nation. That's how they understood their place before God. That's how they understood their relationship with God. Yet we notice that Israel failed. But Israel doesn't fail because the true Israel is the person of Jesus. God's global hope for the world is not a nation. It is the person who that nation would eventually provide. That Jesus is God's global hope. And those of us who place our faith in Jesus can trust that we will not fail because we are with Him. It talks about His temptation and what He walked through. Tempted by Satan. Wild animals. And, and all of this is conveying to those of us who see and read this text that God has done something for us in Jesus that is altogether unique because we know how tempted we happen to be. We know our own struggles with sin. We know our own shortcomings. We know how we continually remind ourselves of the sin that we say that we've turned away from. And Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to carry you through. I will move you past this. That I am the hope of the world. And those who are in me can know that hope is fulfilled. Jesus, in this passage, is letting us know. Mark is letting us know. 
that Jesus is God's global hope and we have attached ourselves to that. That's why our church talks about mission. If you're, not, if you're in this room and, you, and you've never heard us talk about baptism, when we consider the baptism of Jesus, that's why we chat about baptism. It's a saying that we're going to follow him and, and do everything we can to reflect what God has done for us in Jesus. When we talk about this idea of the temptation of Jesus, we are saying we know we're sinful. And I know that I struggle. But my hope is in Jesus who is neither of those things. Jesus driven into the wilderness. The passage moves because remember we're sprinting down these texts. Verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. There's that word again. This good news. And the good news that Jesus happens to proclaim is loaded. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When we read the word time, we may miss what it actually means because of our concept of it. You will set an alarm on your phone because you know that you need to wake up at 5.15 in the morning or 6.15 or you do you, 10.45. The idea of time is not just this notion of an alarm that we set. The idea of what God has done for us in Jesus, this time that is fulfilled... It is God ripping reality in two and declaring that God in person stands in our midst. This time is fulfilled. It is God saying to us that we should turn from the way that you currently see your life and that you see the world around you. And you turn from your current condition and you plunge yourself into this good news that the hope of God is not found in other people. That the hope of God is not found in, in what takes place for us when we read the news. That the hope of God is not true when we align ourselves with a political party or a media outlet. But the hope of God is that we would immerse ourselves in who Jesus is and we would allow him to shape that. Immerse yourself in it. It, like, don't just dip your toe in the water of God's new reality provided to you by the person of Jesus, but immerse yourself. The first day of summer when your pool opens, you know, after we've had that three weeks of winter here in Lake Jackson, you jump in to break the cold. Immerse yourself. It, it's the first day that we go as a family. When we went to SeaWorld last year, we walked through the gate immediately, as Mark would say. We went to one ride. We did not spend and waste time with the Dr. Seuss rides. We went to a ride called the Steel Eel. If you are unfamiliar with the Steel Eel at SeaWorld, it, it looks like this. Yeah, it's huge. It's uh, 65 miles per hour. It's a 150-foot drop. The G-force is 3.5. I don't know what that means, but you do. And it's our first ride of the day. Now, you don't know, if you don't know me, I have... A 13-year-old, I have a 10-year-old, I have an 8-year-old daughter, and at the time, I have a son who was 5 years old. My family gets in line to ride this ride that's going to travel 150 feet up, 65 miles per hour down. When we get to the top of the 
coaster, they conveniently tell me that I cannot take my backpack on there. So I go to pay $47 to put it in a locker. The family's still up there, and they sit down on the coaster. Alder, my five-year-old, sits beside his mother, and as it goes up, click, click, moving on this coaster. There's a point where I was told it looked as if he was going to black out. He did not laugh. He did not cry. He just made this noise for the entirety of the ride. Like he was a sheep that had been attacked. Immersed for the rest of the day. When you read this passage and we see what God has done for us in Jesus... What he is saying is the gospel is this. God has ripped time and space in two. Heaven and earth have met in this crucified, resurrected Savior. Immerse yourself in him. Let him define for you, declare for you, show you the way that you're supposed to live. Trust what he says above what other people say. Believe in this Jesus. Align yourselves with the things that he aligns with. Love what he loves. Hate what he hates. Run where he runs. Go where he goes. Do what he does. Because we are people who have experienced the good news of God shown to us in Jesus holistically. Are we people who are satisfied to simply dip our toe in the water or are we immersing ourselves in following after Him? Faithfully living for His sake. Because the last thing we see is that God is calling you to be part of what He's doing. God is calling each and every one of us to be part of what God is doing for us in Jesus. 16 through 20. After we've seen his baptism. After we've seen him deal with temptation. After we've seen him step on in front of everyone and say, Trust in me. Immerse yourself in me. Walk with me. Believe in me. He passed along the Sea of Galilee. And he saw Simon and Andrew. Simon's brother. They were casting nets into the sea. And as they were casting nets into the sea, because they're fishermen, that's what they do. Follow me. And I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets. And they followed him. Going a little while further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in the water. Immediately he calls to them. They left their father in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Immediately, these men leave everything. Two situations where they leave everything. You can tell by the way it all breaks down. They're in the boat. He says, follow me. So they follow him immediately. Follow me and walk with me. And I'm going to make you fish for people. Something's happening there and I don't want us to miss it. We can use this phrase, and I think rightly, to talk about what it means for us to be evangelistic, to share our faith. But I think we miss the fullness of what's taking place because we overlook who they actually were. He is saying to them, I want you to go and fish for people because they got fishermen, being a fisherman. They had training to be fishermen. They had invested their lives in being fishermen. They had relationships that were surrounded and immersed in being fishermen. And Jesus says, I want you to take all of your life experience, all of your training, all of your experience as a fisherman, and I want you to go to people for my sake with those things in mind. 
And I think it's important for us not to overlook that you may not be a fisherman. But that doesn't mean that all that God has done to train you to do what you're doing, all that you're, of your life experience that God has given you, all the relationships that God has provided for you, cannot be used so that you can see people reached for Christ. So that you can interact as someone who has been immersed in the person of Christ. If you're, you're a student, will we'll learn and immerse yourself in this idea of living as someone who is learning and interacting and, and having cultural situations for the sake of Jesus. If you're an engineer or an operator or whatever you happen to be doing, would you see that those experiences, that training, those relationships are not simply things that exist in this weird little bubble to the side, but they are actually there for you to be living for the sake of Jesus right where you happen to be. The passage is showing us this, that these men and their occupation was was tied to their next commitment, this commitment to Jesus. We'll still see them fishing from time to time in the Scriptures. It doesn't mean they abandoned that. It meant that all of that stuff was so that they could live with this immersion in Jesus in mind. So whatever your thing is, I don't know what your thing is. That's given to you by God. With a greater reality in mind. They walk away immediately. They leave, they leave poor Zebedee sitting there by himself. Just nets in hand. So they can follow this Jesus. And you may be thinking, why does this good news of Jesus always seem to be invading my good time? Why does he say stuff to me that... Why does he ask me to do stuff that I don't want to do? Why does he want me to act ways I don't want to act? Why does this Jesus seem to always have a word for my better that seems to make my life worse? We've all felt that. When, when I was in high school, my brother couldn't get out of his own way. It just made poor decisions. A lot of bad choices and a pretty rough home life. My mom was pretty sick. But that didn't mean that his... I mean, it, there's this weird fine line between circumstance and excuse, and you, anybody can ride it. But he would do dumb things. They ranged. Some of the dumb things were... They made us wear school uniforms. So I remember one day, the entire school protested they were making us wear school uniforms. My brother, the next day, not when everyone was out there besides me because I was inside. Everyone was out there with picket signs protesting school uniforms. The very next day, my brother and his dumb friend, and I hope that's not offensive, but he was, they were outside, just the two of them, with picket signs. Just making a statement. Uh, He would do ignorant things. He would have illegal substances in his locker. And then there were even the horrific things that he did. He and the same friend attacked another kid with a table leg at one point. he's making bad decisions his situation is really bad all that swimming together just this endless cycle of stupidity we had a principal named Jim Jarvis that's still his name and my brother couldn't stand him Jarvis was always giving him directions as to how to live his life you should do this, you should do that, don't do this stay away from him Tear that picket sign up. Just always giving him directions that did not, in my brother's mind, uh, 
coincide with his good time. After the, the final straw had been broken, I can remember being in the hallway of school, sitting on one of those wooden school benches. We all know what those feel like. I can remember the, the wood planks across my back. I can remember how cold it was outside. I can remember this experience almost as much as I can remember any experience in my life. And I hear there's a conversation taking place in the principal's office about my dumb brother. And I'm listening the way that you listen to things that are about you that aren't really about you. Miss Jarvis, who I would think would be the first one to suspend him, was there pleading his case. Pleading his case, even though he was a pain in my... My brother was a pain in his neck and numerous other places. Pleading his case. Letting them know that he believed that there could be something better for him. Pleading his case as he explained to him how broken my brother's situation happened to be. Pleading his case because Jarvis, his wife, was going through a similar cancer that my mom happened to go through. This person who was giving him all of these directions and all of these instructions that my brother hated was hearing these things from him and frustrated by those. All the while, that same person is going on his behalf Speaking for him. When we look into this passage and we talk about this Jesus, this good news, who God has ripped the sky in two to provide for us, that God would stand in our place. This Jesus, there are times when it seems like he's asking things of us that we don't want to do and begging things of us that we don't want to respond to and giving direction to us that we don't want to follow. All the while, this very Jesus is pleading your case. Speaking to God, speaking to God the Father, speaking to the, to the Holy Spirit on your behalf, saying, this one, this one, there's hope here. There's hope here. There is hope here. And their situation is broken and they can't overcome their sin. But I'm with them and I'm going to be for them. So would we be people who respond to the words of Jesus accordingly? When Jesus gives us direction that we don't want to follow, can we just trust Him? Can we just follow Him? We believe that He's for us. So there are numerous things we can do with this because we just dropped a lot and that's okay. You may be here and you may not have a relationship with Jesus. I, I, I'm not... I believe that. I believe that we have non-Christian people here every Sunday. What if we would align ourselves with the teaching of Mark and immediately follow him today? Because he has immersed himself in your sin. He has immersed himself in your world. And he has taken that upon himself so that you could walk away clean. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but whatever the next step is for you, you've not taken. That can be something as simple as you're here every week and you almost have a common law relationship with our church. You know what that means? but you've never become a member of this church, maybe for you, you would immediately follow up with us about what it means for you to be a member of this church. So you would not be a nomad running around without a family, but you home. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus and you, you've just never been baptized. You, you've never taken that step. And here, we can get, have a lengthy conversation as to why we believe that's really important for you. I don't think you have to be baptized to be a Christian. I just think it's a really great opportunity that aligns with what Jesus actually did for you to say that I trust Him and I trust Him completely. You can say that to this family and to anybody you invite to be part of that.
Whatever your step is, whatever your thing is, Jesus is calling you to immediate response. Immediate response. So would we hear from this? Hearing all that God has done, trusting all that God has said, seeing all that God has provided, and would we trust and would we ask ourselves, what am I going to immediately do to display that I trust in this Messiah? Because there's a next step for each of us. Would we take it? Would we walk that path? Because that path has been made ready. Made ready for us by the person of Jesus. It's a path we can't walk apart from Him. It's a path we can walk with Him on every day. Your next step, my next step. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I invite you to bow your heads. I'm going to be in the back right-hand corner of my right hand corner of the room. If you're here and you would like to do follow-up on any of this, I would love to chat with you about what that means and why that means it. If you're not a believer in Jesus, but you want to believe in Jesus, he's already doing the work to draw you to himself. So come, let's interact about that. If you need to be baptized, come chat with me. Whatever your next step is, let's take it. Let's, let's choose that immediately. Father, we thank you for today, and I pray that you will remind us of your good grace. Lord, I pray that your grace, which is sufficient, will be enough for us. We will realize that. We will not forget it. Be with us as we sing, and help us to respond to you accordingly. We ask this in Christ's name.